0: Good evening, good evening, good evening. We are going to look at Psalm 63 this evening as we come back from our break. I appreciate you hanging with us as we uh, take a look now at probably the most common type of psalm, uh, a, a lament psalm. There will be individual laments, and that's what we'll see this evening, as well as communal or community laments. Um, expressions to God of the soul, which is really sort of the essence of the book of Psalms. And so uh, we're going to spend a little time in the wilderness tonight, and that's where uh, David will be. And those particular thoughts and moments with the Lord when we're estranged from our our normal habits, and in his case, he's prevented from worshiping in the tabernacle, uh, as we see the reason for his estrangement and and the types of thoughts uh, that that wells up inside of him, and his desire to, to be with the Lord. Uh, as I was contemplating this evening, uh, I was really kind of going back over my 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 career, I guess, if you will, as in in ministry. It's it's at this point, it's only two chapters. I was sixteen years in academic ministry, Bible college, so I was around lots of believers, obviously uh, students as well as faculty, but a school's a little different animal. You, you, you have a classroom relationship, but it's not as tight as a church. And so when we would hear about the, the odd student who was particularly ill or perhaps had passed, or every once in a while we have some illness among the faculty, it was a big deal. Um, but it wasn't something that, that sort of came over you all the time. I must admit, ever since coming here three years ago, and, and from a pastoral perspective, as I've gotten to know people and and I'm telling you, there is not a day that goes by in which we don't get an email that, that this individual sick or this has happened to this person. And and you just develop this sense of care for them and what it must be like uh, to be going through that wilderness experience. So th- this one hit me uh, pretty good, and I can't imagine as I look around the room, and there's all ages in here, that, that wilderness experiences have not uh, been in your repertoire that's not in your bag of tricks so far. It's, a, it's an arrow, it's a qu- arrow in your quiver. And if you're really young, it will be, I promise you. So um, this is one of those times in the scripture where David's going to say some things that we kind of wonder, is this okay to say to God? Uh, this is actually one of the more calm laments. He gets m- very upset in some other lament psalms, but he's going to let his expressions be made known unto the Lord. And One of the reasons I love Levent Psalms, it it really gives us a window into how God wants to relate to us. Tell me what you're thinking. Go ahead, open up. I already know, and he gives us the permission to uh, express ourselves and to complain, if you will, but notice in the progression of the psalm, as the psalmist himself, as he recalls the, the faithfulness of the Lord in this case, his past experiences with God, that's what reminds him that God is indeed faithful and will get him through this experience, but We've got to get in the wilderness first before we get out of it. So uh, let me pray for us. And then uh, we're going to spend some time in Psalm 63, our main focus. Uh, but because all the Psalms, especially David's life, has background in Samuel, in particular 2 Samuel in this case, we're going to spend a little time in Second Samuel. We're going to be taking a look at Absalom's rebellion, which I think is the background of this psalm. And then we know that Psalm 3 has, uh, is the background for, uh, Absalom's rebellion is the background for Psalm 3, a very similar psalm. And I just want to show you uh, another psalm quickly as we just read it, another psalm of David as he laments about this thing that's happened in his life as his son has rebelled against him and has, in fact, exiled him from his palace. And so a pretty big deal that's happened in David's life. Our point of contact, obviously, are those times in life where uh, the legs are pulled out from under us and we find ourselves in the wilderness. And David is going to give us, I think, the proper... um, and we want to use the word formula, but the, the proper approach uh, to uh, understanding and dealing with the wilderness experience. Okay, Lord, we indeed wish to uh, hear from you this evening and recognize your spirit as the teacher among us. Uh, we're thankful, Lord, for the, the many types of expressions found in the Word of God. Uh, I admit we're certainly attracted to the times of, of great joy and praise, and and the deeper things of God as revealed in in some of the more precise uh, sections of Scripture. But I'm particularly drawn to this part of the Bible where you allow us to um, register what it is that's on our hearts and say them out loud and then uh, do business with you. So um, for each one here, Lord, that is currently going through a wilderness experience or helping others that are uh, or that will be one day, may you uh, prepare us, may you steal us, may you guide us toward uh, a proper reaction to uh, those times in life uh, where we just seem so far from you, and uh, whatever the event it is that causes us to to be estranged from you uh, may uh, may you through David this evening teach us to seek you earnestly uh, and wherever our situation might find us Lord. we do pray for those that are uh, experiencing uh, physical uh, dilemma, uh, perhaps financial woes, all the things that can come in life that uh, uh, that can cause great distraction and great Um, consternation in our souls. Ask you to relieve them uh, with your presence and your way. We ask now uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Psalm 63, one is really the the, the key to to the little psalm. I love what he says. Immediately, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Uh, It's a poem. Um, probably set to music, but it clearly is going to incorporate uh, the physical part of his life being in a literal dry and um, weary land in that it doesn't produce fruit. We're going to take a look at probably where he was. But he's going to take his physical surroundings and apply it to what his soul is feeling like, what his, what his body and what his heart for the Lord is experiencing. You'll see that elsewhere in the scripture. As the deer pants for the water, Psalm 42, so my soul yearns for you. Uh, that, that experience of being thirsty and where that just dominates everything that you're about. I've got to find something to drink or I've got to find something to eat. And everything else is sort of secondary. Uh, he's going to use his experience in a, in a literal dry and um, estranged place uh, to take that to what he's really feeling inside, for he is separated and estranged from the Lord. We'll spend a little time talking about the tabernacle and what life was like in the Old Testament. It's totally different, their their approach to God and His physical location is different than what we experience. So kind of going back, being good time travelers, understanding where we are in God's revelation as it progresses. We're going to go back to a time in which just Jewish kings and a few uh, important uh, craftsmen at time had the Spirit of God. David will certainly know the story and will probably experience that when Saul had the Spirit depart from him. So he understands that aspect of life with God. After his sin with Bathsheba, he will say, Take not thy Spirit from me. Now, that's not our situation today, for the Spirit is an indwelling, permanent person in us now. But that was not the case then. And God was in a place moreover than he is today. We certainly recognize him as, as everywhere, and he's always been that way. But the way he taught people was he was inside the tabernacle, and in particularly inside the Ark of the Covenant or above it as he uh, shone in what is known as the Shekinah glory. That's what David is going to miss, his times where well, we might say my times in church, my times in the presence of the Lord and how powerful that was for him. But before we get there, let's do a little background Of all the psalms that we're going to study, this is probably the most important to really think through the chronology of David's life. And, of course, it's far more complex than this. And quite frankly, it's difficult. Samuel, uh, both first and second, as you overlay chronicles, can be some tough sledding. But we do know some dates for sure. Uh, David was enthroned uh, over Judah in Hebron uh, in the southern area at at 30 years of age. He lived there for seven and a half years. What's going to be important, you'll pick it up here in a moment, is Absalom will be born to him during that seven-year period. Um, and so we'll be, we can do the timeline on both of them. David will be about 35 when Absalom is born, and we'll see how Absalom's rebellion will affect David much later in his life. Uh, David will then move to Jerusalem at the seven-and-a-half-year point, being thrown there, and then become king over all Israel and Judah as the nation was coming back together. And he will die in 971 B.C. at 70 years of age. The kingships ships in Israel are easy to remember. Saul... David, Solomon, 40 years, 40 years, 40 years. And so that was kind of the Lord to give us that easy math. Uh, We're right in the middle. Uh, We're at the high point of Israel's history. Uh, The Messiah will be from the son of David because of the covenant that that God will cut with David in 2 Samuel 7. And so... Um, the background of this, of this type, uh, this time in biblical history is 1 and 2 Samuel, to get the whole story in particular, Second Samuel, and you'll see uh, this lament sort of rest on that background. This is, again, an individual lament psalm. Um, it is interestingly placed in the Psalter in, the, in which Psalm 61, then Psalm 62, and 63 are this little trilogy of psalms. And the first two, Psalm 61 and 62, there are lament psalms as well, but they highly stress the, the, the their trust of God. And here it sort of reaches a climax in Psalm 63, where his trust in God to deliver him from his, Israel, from his enemies is solidified, and he states it very confidently. Um, lament psalms, like our psalms, like our poetry, has structure. It has components that you will find in it. Uh, the sheet that we passed out the first week, and there's some more out in the hall that looks like this, it will not only help you classify the psalms, but it'll help you see about in the middle the different components that can be found in a lament psalm. What we're going to see in this particular psalm is a very classic presentation of the lament in which the problem is stated. Right off the get-go, he's going to say, what's wrong and what's bothering him? He's going to register a complaint against his enemies, and he's certainly going to ask God to handle it, but he takes his time getting there. The lament psalmist uh, sort of, we can sort of piggyback with him as we get that opportunity to freely express our concerns. There are some really um, poignant lament psalms. We'll take a look at one here in Psalm 3 in a moment, but some of the more straightforward ones will ask the two great questions of, uh, the, of a lament psalm is uh, how long and how come, uh, when and why. When are you going to remove this dilemma and why have you allowed me to undergo it? Uh, and so it allows the expression of that complaint. The person's already thinking in any way. I sort of love the, the Lord for his willingness, al- his allowance, if you will, for us to express it. And the, the model of the Lament Psalm certainly allows us to, to do so. But then the complaint turns uh, to praise, as you see, uh, the trust in God stated. Uh, this is where the, uh, the, the one who, the lamenter, recalls previous acts of God's faithfulness toward him or her contemplates those. Thy word have I hidden thy heart in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's the time under the pressure of life and the wilderness experience in which those biblical and theological uh, pillars that we have already laid are called upon. It's not the time to be saying hey where's that verse that says? uh, Anybody got a concordance? Uh, This might be the time where there is no Bible. This might be that time where Uh, You're in a hospital room and and, and perhaps you're not able to read or or something that all you have is what you know about the Lord as hidden in your heart. And you recall those and those past actions of God's faithfulness to you begin to well up in you and build toward the solution. Uh, The solution is then provided somehow in the psalm. He will state that it will be in the future or that he himself will undergo this or I know that God will deliver me from this particular dilemma. One of the components that I like the most and and one of the things that I would like to see more in our worship is this vow to praise when delivered. The the tense of the verbs are important. He's saying, you get me out of this and I am certain that you will because you have in the past. When you do, I'm going to be certain to vow and, and vow to praise your name, publicly extol what you have done for me. I think the place of testimony, uh, and, and not just when I got saved kind of testimony, but the evidences of God's moving in our lives are sometimes not included as much as I, I would like to see it. In, in not just here, but anywhere. That, that's a huge part of life with God is that mutual edification that we all receive when one stands up and says, God has rescued me. He has delivered me from some dilemma. Let me tell you about it. That's the essence of praise, by the way, is specifically recalling specific things about God and what he has done for you. It's not just covered with a nice little hallelujah. It's it's specifically recalling that God met me in my need and he did it this way. And now I want to encourage you and remind you that God is very much alive and active in life today. And so the vow to praise once delivered is a classic component of a lament psalm. Uh, The background, and let's go ahead and go to your Bibles, and in particular your your actual Bibles, not your... It's great to have the the Psalms notebook, but I want to remind you of this the little superscriptions that you'll see in your Bible, that they're very helpful. They're not from the editor of your Bible. They're actually from God Himself. uh, But we need to make sure we can distinguish between uh, the editor uh, version and the God version. So in Psalm 63, uh, for example, right under the phrase Psalm 63, my Bible says... The Thirsting Soul Satisfied in God. That's the editor's inclusion. That's just the title that he is, or she has dropped in to help us kind of know what this psalm is about. But right beneath that, in a different font, it says a psalm of David, and then uh, it looks like a little weird L, uh, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. That is actually verse 1 in the Hebrew text. Uh, That is an inspired background. And so we know that something's going on. We know he's in Judah, and he's in the wilderness, and if you study the phrase in the wilderness, it's hardly ever good. Uh, This is a a rough country that we're going to see here, uh, for he has been estranged from his palace by his son, I believe, in this case. Um, There's a couple of reasons why David would be uh, in the wilderness. Uh, There's two times, certainly, and some would argue that there's three, but there's two main times in David's life where he was on on the run. Um, The first time, of course, is that odd period of time in his life from which he was uh, anointed at a very young age until he actually became king. Uh, That if he was anointed at 15, the youngest of Jesse's sons, uh, he didn't reach the throne until he was 30, yet he had been anointed or masiacht, as we studied that word a couple of weeks ago, the king in waiting, we might say. Saul, of course, was the king. All during that time, for almost 10 years of it, he was being pursued by Saul. He used to eat dinner at Saul's table until one time at a particularly bad evening, Saul threw a sword at him or a spear at him, and David said, that's that's bad etiquette there, bud. I'm, I'm going to run on down the road here. He made the covenant with Jonathan, Saul's son, and he took off. And he had all many opportunities, by the way, to kill Saul. And yet he would state, even during that time in which Saul was still the king, and yet he was the anointed king in waiting. I will not come against the Lord's anointed. And so that that time in David's life taught him what life in the wilderness was like. Um, But he was not considered the king at that time. And there is an interesting phrase in Psalm 63, if you want to look at verse 11, that I think tips it to that he is describing the other great flight time in his life when his son Absalom came against him, and removed him from power, and David was forced to flee from Israel. This will occur in my, from my chronology very late in David's life, probably at around age 65. Um, and so he's been king for quite a while, and that is going to be the background of this time in his life where he is now in his second exile at the hand of his son. Um, and I take it that when he, phrases, when, he, when he uses the phrase in Psalm 63... Eleven. It's a particular uh, unique phrase in which he calls himself the king. It's hard to find examples, I couldn't find any, uh, where David would refer to himself as the king prior to his actually ascending to the throne at the age of 30. So uh, all during his flight from Saul, it was before the age 30, before he had been enthroned. So I think it's fair that this is his flight from Absalom. Uh, after he has been king for a number of years. Flip over with me to Psalm 3 for a second. Uh, this one we know uh, is is written during that time. Um, we don't want to uh, exclude this one because we have a clear superscription in which it states uh, that this is during the time of, of his exile from Absalom. And we'll read Psalm 3 first. I'll just read it out loud and then we'll begin to see some parallels because this is a, another lament psalm and it will have many of those characteristics. The complaint, the request of God to take care of my adversaries, uh, the certainty of God's uh, deliverance, uh, the vow to praise, things of that nature. They can be arranged all over the place, by the way. They don't have to follow a particular order, but they, those components are found in lament psalms. And notice again in Psalm 3, the superscription, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son is clear that that's during this time in David's life toward the end of his life. Um, and we'll go, we'll go through some of Absalom's history uh, to sort of get the the poignancy uh, of the, and the irony of, of a son um, removing a father from the throne and uh, from his own palace. Notice in Psalm 3, just as we see sort of the shorter version of this lament during this time, he says, O oh Lord... How my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, aren't a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. We'll see that same word in Psalm 63. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against Who have set themselves against me round about? Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The blessing Thy blessing be upon Thy people. Many of the same components, so, sorts of illusions, but that one is a clear uh, indication of what he was thinking and feeling when he was fleeing under, Solomon, or under Absalom's time on the throne. Let's go back and recall a little bit to set the stage, because to simply say, oh, this was when David was fleeing from his son, it doesn't quite capture it. Uh, We're going to have to imagine what it was like and what David had experienced up until this time that his own son uh, comes against him. Uh, Av shalom, uh, Av means uh, father in Hebrew, Shalom means peace. My father is peace is the name of this guy. He is uh, uh, the handsome son of David uh, by a woman named Makkah in Hebron uh, when David was about 35 years old. During that seven and a half year period where he was king um, in the south, before he came to Jerusalem, Absalom was born to him. Uh, he, Absalom is the brother, in a little bit more familiar territory maybe here, the brother of Tamar who was raped by Amnon, David's oldest son, and he, Absalom, will counter by slaying Amnon and flees north to a city called Gersher for three years. This is that part in David's life where, again, off our subject, but very interesting in the scripture, that, you know, if you're writing the Bible and you want to make David look good, there's a whole lot of things you would leave out, because there's a whole lot of things in here that does not make him look good. Because he was a guy. He's a he's a normal fellow. He did great things with the Lord and he sinned grievously. He's got um you know conspiracy to commit murder, adultery on his rap sheet. He's got a family in disarray. He's not going to be allowed to build the temple for he was a man of bloodshed, a man of war. Uh he's he's a, a, an interesting fellow. Uh he, his highs are very high and his lows are very low. And that's the reasons that One of the reasons that so many people are attracted to this character, but to only see him as a great guy who never went wrong uh, would not be to properly capture David and learn from him, his family in, in disarray here. And so this is some of the background of his family. Absalom is permitted then to return to Jerusalem. Absalom at that point will be around 24 years old. David will be 59. So uh, start to put some chronology. If David ascended to the throne at 30... He's been doing this a while. He's uh, had lots of enemies come his way. His uh, his own son would have been the last one he would have thought would have come against him. Uh, there, it's not clear um, whether Absalom, I think we can look back and, and certainly realize that Absalom was upset uh, with his father, but we don't know why he did not see his father for two years, but he didn't. The Bible's very clear on that. And so some time is going by, and then Absalom is going to begin a little conspiracy, He doesn't just start off, you know, he doesn't download an army on eBay or anything. He's got to go build one. He's got to get some alliances. And how he does it is going to be the little fodder of our first study here tonight. He will begin this conspiracy while David builds the palace and the tabernacle and then places the ark. Now, there is some controversy, and not everybody agrees on the exact chronology that's going on here. Um, I'm, I'm quite convinced that it wasn't really till the end of David's life that he went on a building spree. The bulk of David's life was a military guy. He was, he was, he was defeating armies. Uh, we see even in 2 Samuel 7 when the ark comes into the town uh, that I take it that that's at the very end of his life for it says God finally gave him rest from all those on his side. It could be earlier in his life. It's not one of the things you want to break fellowship over. But I think at the end of David's life, he's realizing the most important things, and that is the Lord And he wants to build structures for the Lord and for his glory. Now, interestingly, he will build his own house first, and then he will be rebuked about that, and then he will build the tabernacle. Now, that's different than the temple, because he's not going to be allowed to build the actual temple. Solomon, his son, will do that, but he's going to build the tabernacle that will, that permanent or that uh, impermanent edifice that existed in the wilderness, certainly in, in Exodus and. Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and then it's going to be captured in the Ark of the Covenant. David was transfixed with the Ark of the Covenant. Just study the word Ark in First and 2 Samuel, and you'll see David's always saying, let's move it here. That's the time where he danced before the Lord when they brought the Ark in. I think he's actually much older when he did that, which makes a little different scene in your mind. If if you've got Richard Gere and King David in your head, you know he, he's a little older than that when he does it but he is becoming transfixed on the place where God lives and the time he is spending with God in that place. And that will be what it is that he misses, I take it, when the psalm is written. Uh, Absalom's four-year conspiracy begins. Now, let's go to 2 Samuel 15 and do some stuff at your tables because it's only six verses, and uh, I want you to sort of notice uh, the modus operandi of Absalom. What is it that he does particularly to build this conspiracy? How does he do it? It's also nice instructions on how to conspire against a king. If you want to follow these instructions, you would have that opportunity one day. But look at 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 6, and just kind of jot down some of the things that you notice as an individual or at your tables uh, that David or that Absalom does to bring about this conspiracy. Okay, if you were going to use 2 Samuel 15 and write an instructional manu- manual on how to conduct a conspiracy, what, what's the first thing he did found in verse 1? He got some guys. You know, he, he got, the, got the horse, he got the chariot, 50 runners in front of him. He's starting to develop a little reputation. He needs some guys to pull this off. He's not going to have near the number of soldiers that he's going to have what we think to be four years later as the time unfolds, uh, but he's, going to, he's got to get a band of guys. David did the same thing, by the way. He had guys that followed him, and so these were his closest allies, and they helped him begin to build a reputation of importance. Think about it. You're, walk, you're, drive, you're on the street and here comes a guy with a chariot and a horse and 50 guys running in front of him. Wow. Who's, who's that guy? And you begin to develop. So he got a little attention for himself. What's the next thing that he did in verse two and three? Meeting and greeting. Meeting and greeting but OK. But, but what's his what's he doing in particularly? OK, but what's a little a little, little, little little irony or a little sarcasm probably at the end of, in, in verse three. The last phrase of verse 3. Talk about, you got, you got claims, you're coming up, You got. sounds like you got a pretty good claim, but what? Okay, who's supposed to be listening to the claims? The king. What's the king doing? He's building stuff. He's building tabernacles. He's building his palace first. He's building a tabernacle. All that happened in around a four-year period of time. And now Absalom's seeing his opportunity, why David... He's got his hard hat on, is out sort of questioning the goodness of the king. Same thing the evil one does in Genesis 3, by the way. And question whether he's a good king. Notice what he says at the end of verse 3. or in All of verse 3, Absalom would say to them, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. David had, was not taking care of the business of the court, or so Absalom claims. What's going on next? As he now is mounting his criticism of David, and his rule, what's the next domino that comes over? I know a guy who could do that. Who, Absalom? Well, you know, I I could do that, maybe if you guys really wanted me to. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land, just for your sake, of course, that every man, every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. This is about justice. This is not about me, from saying, you guys need justice. You're not getting it from this guy over here. Oh yeah, the king, he's supposed to be the one doing that. I'll take care of your problem. And so it happened when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him uh, and, and kiss him. So he not only promises to be better than David, now he's starting to do what? His personal charm and he's allowing it to be seen that people are ascribing to him, that we saw that in Psalm 2, kiss the sun, that, that term in Hebrew, to pay homage to something, uh, and, and that idea. Now, Absalom is receiving often what kings receive. And he's. Uh, we know he's a handsome guy, uh, and his uh, head of hair was heavy, by the way. It's the same word that we get our word glory from, because in Hebrew, we'll see here in a moment that it, it, like in our language, there's a literal meaning and a figurative meaning. Something that described as heavy, that is weighed a lot, that's descriptive of Absalom's hair. He had a whole lot of it. I have the same problem. I just get headaches all the time from the amount of hair that's coming off my head. It will eventually cost him, remember, because he gets his head caught in the, a thicket. Uh, and that word glory will come from the idea of that which is heavy or important. And so it's interesting how the word stretches both in Hebrew and in English, that does the same thing. He's a nice-looking fellow. We've had the same problem before in Israel's history. Saul was chosen because he was taller than everybody else. Now that's quite a bullet on your resume. You know, choose me, I'm tall. And so everybody liked him, and so we're seeing some of the same, same things repeated. It was very clear through Samuel that God looked upon the heart, and that's why he chose David. And so we're seeing... Uh, the flesh come out and, and appeal to people's sense of, of of what they think they want. So his personal charm and flattery. I love the way he phrases things. It happened that when a man came, he would allow it to put his hand and take hold of it and kiss him. And in this manner, as Absalom dealt with all of Israel who came to the king for judge, judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Probably about a four-year period of time there. There is a textual problem in the next verse because it says it took 40 years, Uh, but it is, I think, without a doubt, a a textual problem that should have been rendered 40. Uh, Many versions, many manuscripts do say four. Actually, the New American Standard relies on the oldest manuscripts, and the oldest manuscripts said 40, and so sometimes you have to make that call. Uh, But the chronology doesn't work, frankly, uh, from some of the dates that we know elsewhere. That he would not could not have been doing that for 40 years because David would have long been dead by then. So if you'll allow that to go, uh, that he's been uh, it took about this four-year time to bring that about. And that is when he sort of sprung his trap upon David. And later in 2 Samuel he um, his rebellion and later David's exile comes about. But what's key? We're going to be David in Psalm 63. David's 65 years old. His 30-year-old son comes against him. David's been the king on the throne for 35 years. He never expected this to happen. At this time in his life where he's building monuments to himself and then properly redirecting those efforts toward a monument and a place for the Lord to live, his own son comes against him. Steals the heart of the people. get insights into David's heart here as he flees Jerusalem as seen here. In, in these two verses in 2 Samuel 15, David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And with great parallel to the Lord Jesus' notice in 2 Samuel 15:30, And David went up on the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. His head was covered and he walked barefoot. Um, These events happen throughout Israel's history, and yet they're so commonplace there, we we would be completely aghast if we were to see our government overthrown. Go back in your mind uh, just to September 11th, uh, those uh, with a bit more uh, age, certainly some cataclysmic events in war, certainly World War II and, and, and Vietnam in those days that were just dark, and you would just see and wonder about your future. Imagine your king. Uh, Fleeing barefoot, uh, head covered, weeping on the Mount of Olives because his son had now taken over the throne. That's the backdrop of Psalm sixty-three. He's out in the wilderness. He's in this period or in this section of 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 the lower area of of uh, Israel, known as uh, the wilderness of Judah, to the east of Judah, toward the Dead Sea. As this land goes very powerfully down, it looks like this. Um, and a little bit more clearly here, uh, some tough sledding. Now, there are some areas in there, as you get a little closer to the Dead Sea, where there were some oases. Uh, Ein gedi is there, those places. Uh, but it is very stark uh, land and, and high places. If you've ever read some of the sections in in Samuel, for example, uh, when David was running from Saul, he would stand on one cliff and Saul might be a hundred yards that way, but it might take two days to get there because it was a vast valley between them. Yet he was able to yell at him across the valley. The land is that powerful. It's that stark. It's tough land Uh, and it's it's very unforgiving. Uh, And David is running again. And that, that the images that he would have thought about at night that here I am again, you know the first time I did it, I was waiting to be king, and now i 've been king for thirty five years, and from my own family, I have been exiled in the middle of my building projects, or toward the end, uh, we see this occur, so the message I think that background it was worth it because he 's now separated, and he 'll state his his separation from the tabernacle, the formal place of worship, and we 'll need to Chat about that a moment. By those who seek to kill him, David will satisfy his soul's yearnings for worship by praising God for his loyal love even during his present duress and confidently anticipates his future joy when his enemies are stopped. It's the essence of the lament psalm. He deals with the reality of what's going on now, uh, remembers uh, what it is that he most misses. And it wasn't the pleasures of the palace it wasn't the good food, it wasn't the, the, the relative peace, it was the times where he was before the Lord at the Ark of the Covenant, his church in his time, his place in his mind where God was, uh, and it was very important to the way they thought and, and the way they approached the Lord. So let's just go through this psalm together. Uh, I'll just read it as we uh, uh, maybe uh, see it now with, with that background a bit, and then we'll uh, pick it apart a bit. Psalm 63. Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O oh God, you are my God, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for thee, in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have beheld thee in the sanctuary, to see thy power and thy glory. Because thy lovingkindness is better than life, my lips will praise thee. So I will bless you as long as I live, and I will lift up my hands... In thy name, my soul is satisfied with the marrow and fatness. My mouth offers praises of joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For thou hast been my help. In the shadow of thy wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. My right hand, thy right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword they will be prey for foxes, but the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him, God, will glory for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. I think there's three major sections in this psalm. Uh, there's an introduction, which is very classic to a lament psalm. It takes the first couple of verses in which he, he's going to use the image of the physical dryness, the physical thirst that he's experiencing, and move that to the soulish or spiritual level. As he contrasts his present parched experience with his recollection of God's power and glory in the tabernacle, David will yearn to be in God's presence again. Recalling those times with the Lord, those precious times with the Lord, that's what's at the forefront of his mind. That's what he misses the most. The bulk of the psalm will be, uh, as he will move from that um, lament to expressing his vow of confidence and certainty of God's deliverance, as we see at the end in this section, David will, will take a, a, a big drink, not of water, but of the Lord and his loving kindness, his goodness. He will be refreshed on the attributes and characteristics of God. As David satisfies his soul by praising God, why? Praise always demands reason for, in this case, his loyal love. We'll talk about that word in a moment. For the riches of the Spirit and for the help that God provides. And finally, uh, David, uh, because he is reminded himself of the power of God and the glory of God and, pa- and God's past dealing, not only with David, but with mankind uh, who have faithfully followed him, he is confident that God will take care of him. God confident, or David confidently anticipates the destruction of those that seek to kill him. That's, that's sort of one of the, the more unusual points of or parts of a lament psalm where he's very clear that I want you to kill the guys that are after me. Now feed them to the foxes. Uh, it shows um, the, the depth of what's going on. This is, this is warfare. They, they do seek David's life. Uh, and certainly in a kingdom, uh, you have to get rid of all those that were a part of the prior administration. Recall your English and French uh, study of, of those kingships. Often you'll see in the Kings, the Book of Kings, where previous uh, sons and daughters were just murdered by the new king and their family. There could no be uh, allowance of any intrigue that would remain in the castle. Uh, All vestige of the prior administration had to be removed. David knew that. That's why he knew that he was um, being sought to be destroyed. So let's take a look now at the introduction, the first couple of verses. It's actually a couple of most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Um, um, we, We get some of the hymns and psalms from this particular phrase, as we see, as he uh, contrasts his parched experience with the recollections of God's power uh, and glory in the tabernacle, we see that image of thirst now turning for a thirst of God's presence. O God, you are my God, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for thee. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, thus I behold thee in the sanctuary to see thy power and thy glory. Let's, Let's take a look a bit. At, at how he's going to work that out. Uh, the word earnestly, by the way, literally comes from the word in Hebrew for the morning. Um, it, it's the idea that he does it early and that by doing it early, he shows that he's earnest about it. It's the first thing on his to-do list of the day. It's that, that image of when we wake up, or what's the first thing that's going on in our minds? And I can always tell how I'm doing with the Lord at that exact moment. If the first thing on my mind is, or those three things on my to-do list at work, or uh, to fix something in the garage, as opposed to, I love you, Lord, or good morning, Lord, uh, something might be a bit off. That idea of first priority, first thing in the morning, seeking God earnestly. And that's what he chooses to do, and that is really uh, the key to this psalm, is despite where he is, physically or in his walk with the Lord, the importance of seeking the Lord earnestly, by starting in the morning. There's a nice little parallel, as we'll see in a lot of these psalms. We've spent some more time on that in previous psalms. We won't do that in much on this one. But uh, the poetry should not be missed. This is a poem. Uh, Things are done intentionally. He will will connect, rather, soul and flesh, and he will connect thirsting and yearning, not for physical water, uh, but for God himself. And he uh, powerfully makes that statement. He reminds his audience and himself, yes, I'm in this land, dry land. It's a weary land in that it doesn't produce much vegetation. Uh, and there is no water here. That's the background of his situation. But what David's soul is really experiencing is, is dryness and weariness and nourishment. Because to him, to be in the presence of God is where you found that spiritual water, where you found that nourishment, where your soul was replenished by the physical presence of God, which for David was in the sanctuary inside the tabernacle in front of the Ark of the Covenant. He is longing for God's presence, and and, and we're going to spend a little moment on that because that's really the background of what's going on with David Uh, He's longing for the presence of God because he's going to tell us here, because David had beheld God in the sanctuary, literally uh, the set-apart place, what would be the tabernacle, uh, and he had seen his power and his glory there. This is a description of what many of us from time to time, or all of us from time to time, I hope, will experience in what we might call a, a great worship moment, where you're just singing or you're studying or you're meditating and you're contemplating on God, and you're just refreshed, and you're going, man, this is where I need to be. I love this part of my relationship with the Lord, where He just touches us in places where only He can, and its depth and its uh, longevity causes us to, to be sustained by that. To David, that only occurred when he was physically in the presence of God, who was in their mind, restricted to this particular place in the tabernacle to which David had access. That's why it's a little hard for us to get it because we would go, well, I have the Spirit living inside me. I'm not estranged from God when I'm away from the church. I don't need to come to the church to find God. It helps you see, by the way, why a lot of people think that, that God's here Uh, And this is the special place of God. I mean, go to Jerusalem. It's all a bunch of venerated spots because they think, well, the Lord's more precious and and present here, probably better than He is in, you know, Montana or Syria or someplace. He's special because this is where He is. That's not true for us today, but that was true for them. That's why you'll see the Jews at the Wailing Wall. Uh, That's the closest they can get to the Holy of Holies. The Kodesh Kodesh, the, the place of the Ark of the Covenant, because that in their mind is where God is. And so they want to align themselves to proximity where God is. And that's what David is feeling estranged from, is that physical presence of being where the Lord was in his mind. The word sanctuary here is really going to be the, the tabernacle, the, the, the temporary abode of God that you'll see first described in Exodus 25 and following. And will be the place throughout the wilderness experience in which God will live. Uh, The Ark of the Covenant is the essence of that uh, little compound. And you'll see that that tabernacle will go to Hebron. It will go to other cities. They'll drop the Ark of the Covenant one time and guys will die because they didn't do it correctly. Uh, The Ark was the essence of where God was and David was transfixed with it. So he wanted to be back at the place uh, that is set apart. And This is the word translated holy elsewhere throughout the Bible the special place, the set-apart place. Holy does not mean sinless in the Old Testament or the New. It means set-apart or distinct. Now, we are to be set-apart and distinct from sin, but there's all kinds of things that are described in the Bible as holy that are not descriptive of things that are sin or lack of sin. He talks about uh, is upset and wants God to set-apart those that are against me so that you might drag them off for slaughter. Like we would cut cows out of a herd and put them in that particular cow, a particular corral. He's saying, make them distinct and special from the common herd and make them ready for death. And so it's not a term that describes sinless, sinfulness or sinlessness. It's a term that describes separateness. That's the separate place, the special place. Uh, and at that place, God, God's power and God's glory was revealed to David both physically as he looked upon the ark and all the, the great teaching things of the ark, as the cherubim looked over the place where the blood was sprinkled, the mercy seat in which sins were provided for, as he began to think about where that ark had been and all of God's great faithfulness with the people, he was reminded of God's great power, his ability to bring them out of the Red Sea experience, for example, and his glory. That same word to be heavy. Uh, his importance, that God is, is, is fat in the right sense of the word. He's big, uh, and he's, And David is overwhelmed with the largeness and importance of God because that's what he experienced at the tabernacle. That's what he missed. And so we see, if you'll recall, uh, we have a rare photo uh, here of the tabernacle in the wilderness. This is in the back of David's mind as, as from the history of the tabernacle, that as it went throughout the wilderness, you would come and, and meet uh, the priest here, only one entrance, the priest primarily had the role of a teacher by the way, as he explained how one approached the Lord. Uh, the five sacrifices in the book of Leviticus were uh, at their disposal, depending on what was necessary and wanted to be done. You would uh, cleanse your your hands and the sacrifice you cleanse your hands here, the sacrifice continually going up, and inside this area here, the holy place in which the candlesticks and the table of showbread existed. And then finally, behind the veil, uh, the what's called the glory of the Lord throughout Exodus. Wherever the glory of the Lord settled, the camp would settle around it. It's a beautiful image of life with the Lord. Uh, the intentional arrangement of life around the central presence of God. Wherever that Shekinah glory stopped, they constructed uh, this around it again that had been transported. And then they camped around according to pre-described ways of living around the presence of God because what this now affords is we're now able to approach the Lord. Through the law of sacrifice, through the law, the ordinances and the manuals described in books like Leviticus, we're now able to go into the presence of the Lord. And David was enthralled with that idea. And, and so many people believe that he did not build a full um, tabernacle as was in the wilderness. He focused primarily on a smaller tent that housed that housed the ark of the covenant and he would come here and meet with the lord and behold as he says his glory and his power it literally says to see it but it's more that idea that that he beheld the lord he was overcome with the the magnificence of god at those times that's what he's missing when he's in the wilderness, and so uh, that part of David's life is crucial as we understand that uh, that that way of thinking. And it also gives us insight into uh, just a few places I just jotted down of of how David was so had so prioritized worship and the and an experience in God's presence. It inc- certainly included the study of the Word of God, but the idea of celebration. This is a guy who danced before the Lord. Probably at, at age 57 or so, you know, a, a slightly different mindset that we might have. But nonetheless, he's, he's, he's all about making sure that singers and musicians and the Levites are taking care of the ark and that they're recording what it is that's going on and, and we're thanking the Lord and praising and, and singing psalms and rejoicing and being joyful, clapping hands and shouting and dancing. David did every one of these things, as recorded in either Chronicles or the Psalms. He lifted up hands, he worshipped, he sought the Lord, he understood the idea of the spiritual sacrifice and the actual burnt offering, and the saying of amen, uh, that it is so. That idea of approaching God and celebrating one's relationship with God is crucial to David's background, and I think that's what's going on spiritually in his life as he moves toward the end of it. He's prioritizing now properly the things of his life and his relationship with God and that being in that physical presence of the Lord was first bullet. I will seek you in the morning. And I take it that he had access to the tabernacle, the access to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, he would uh, then go before that and seek the Lord's face and his direction. As we see uh, during this time now, uh, he begins to praise. As we see in the body uh, of this psalm in verses 3 through 8. Uh, David will satisfy his own thirst, and that's the key to the lament psalm, is physician, heal thyself. Remember we talked about the Bible assumes you know the Bible? The the Bible assumes that you have knowledge of God and that during those times of wilderness that we can apply those principles and uh, remembrances of the Lord uh, and use them as the way to satisfy our leanness, our weariness, our dryness. David will satisfy his soul by praising God for His loyal love, and that will be the key word that we'll look at, and for the riches of the Spirit, the, the, the whole image of, of, of life in the Spirit, and for the help that God provides. He's going to praise Him for, first of all, God's superior uh, loyal love. Look, look, look with me in verses 3 and 4 in, in Psalm 63 for just a moment, because this is the next section, and notice how it begins. Verse 3 begins with a because. It tells us what He's thinking. I'm doing this Because, I I realize that that I'm thirsty, I I realize that I I have beheld you before, um, but I'm now recalling characteristics about you. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise thee. Great verse for memory. The key word, obviously, is this extremely biblical word, loving kindness. I Can't say I've ever used that word outside of a church meeting. It's just not a common word that you hear. But the, the 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 term is so beautiful and 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 so important. Certainly in David's life, but in all of our lives, it's the idea. It's the Hebrew word Chesed, and it's the idea of of being loyal in a covenant. I don't think of a covenant like a major deal with lawyers and all that stuff. Any any kind of relational agreement. Th- Hesed is that stick that glue that bonds the partners of a covenant together that says in their heart, I am sticking to this deal. And David was no stranger to Hesed. Hesed was really the essence of his relationship with Jonathan. They, after that dinner in which Saul threw the spear at him, David and Jonathan met out in a field and they swore the Hesed of Yahweh on one another. They invoked God's faithfulness and how God had been loyal to the covenant that he had cut with Israel and had remained true to that covenant year after year, decade after decade, century after century. And, and he's saying that's the kind of chesed I'm going to show to you. And really, the whole book of 1st and 2nd Samuel is like a series of dominoes because, because of the relationship that Jonathan and David form, Methibosheth, Jonathan's son, is blessed. Remember, we just got talking about, though, that when a new king comes on, the old king's guys are bad. Well, Methibosheth is the grandson of Saul. Certainly, he might be upset with this new king, David, because it should have come from Saul's lineage. It could have even been him. But Methibosheth would sit at the table of David because David and Jonathan had made a deal around Chesed. And that follows throughout the book uh, the importance that, that David took in God's relationship and his faithfulness to David, David wanted to express that to others. At the core of being the king of Israel is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in that chapter, God swore chesed toward the king. I will be loyal to the king. If you commit iniquity, I'm going to give you a spanking. If you do right, I'll bless you, but I'll always be there. I'll never go away from you. And that idea of chesed so permeated David's relationship with the Lord and his relationship with others. That's what he recalls when he's in the wilderness. I'm going to sing praise because of your hesed toward me, as he says here in Psalm 63, 3. Because of your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise thee. So I will bless thee as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul is satisfied as the marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. It, we, we take a look now at the satisfaction of his soul. He, he's moving beyond his need for water toward a greater need. The loving kindness of God to him is better than life. He's in a stark life and death situation. His priorities are starting to align now. God's faithfulness to me is more important than my life. Because I realize without that faithfulness, I have nothing. And he begins uh, to talk about his blessing of God, his enriching of God's name, and his, his fame in his own, his own heart. The idea of name, by the way, is, is, is that of, of one's full reputation, of, of all that one stands for. Uh, God's sustenance of, of David is recalled here in verses 7 and 8. And let's take a look at a few of these words uh, that he uses here in Psalm 63. That idea of of Hesed we just discussed, uh, we see here he begins to praise him uh, because of the satisfaction of his soul. And there's an interesting cause and effect relationship. Let's do a little thinking on this uh, in verses 5 and 6. Notice in verse 5 and 6, what is the cause and what is the effect between those two verses? Spend a little time privately or at your table and figure out which one comes first. What's the order of events in verses 5 and 6. What comes first? Okay. So really, his activities in verse 6, actually in his life, is what, occur, what happens first, and then his response to verse 6 is recorded in verse 5. The sole satisfaction that he experiences in verse 5 and the praise that will follow is the result... Of his meditation and remembrance upon God. When I remember, so look at it this way: When I remember Thee on my bed, I meditate on Thee in the night watches. Then my soul is satisfied, as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. Interestingly, by the way, only the only the Lord was to enjoy the fat of of the of the meat. It was in their world. It was this thing particularly reserved for God. It was the choicest, and because it was so important, that doesn't have a great connotation in our language today, but it was the, the essence of, of, of the best, and that was always cut off and reserved for the Lord. And David's saying, I'm getting God's best when I meditate on you. What time of the day is he doing this, by the way? At night. So we've seen him early in the morning, first thing, earnestly seeking the Lord, and now on his bed at night remembering zakar, as in zachariah and haggah. we had that little word study on uh, meditate to go over a matter in one's mind uh, it, it can actually even be rendered to think out loud you know how we we're kind of we may be in a meeting and i may say hey lance i haven't formed my thought let me just think out loud here for a moment kind of let, let me tell you what i'm thinking inside it's just that it's that, it was an onomatopoeia word, remember? Haga, 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 haga. It sounds as if that's what you're doing. And to go over a matter, it kind of deep down, elsewhere it's translated to growl. That deep, kind of soulish contemplation of the person of God. And so that's not a quick, you know, now I'll lay me down to sleep. This is some serious thinking at night about his situation pulling back from it a bit in meditation and going, wait a minute, God is faithful to me and he always has been. He has promised from 2 Samuel on to be faithful to the proper king and I am that proper Davidic king. And so he will be faithful to me. So in the midst of this wilderness experience, God is in the midst of this. This is not outside of his control. He has allowed this to occur. Even if David had sinned to cause it to happen, God is still sovereign and using it in David's life. David recalls that, and so he remembers God's goodness, he remembers his character, he meditates on it, so he sort of like he gets the pieces of the puzzle out, and then he begins to put them together. Does that fit here? Is God like that? And then from that, soul satisfaction occurs. The thirst is quenched as he takes a the nesty plunge uh, into the goodness of God. What's not stated but is obvious is that That's a time factor. That's a priority of our time in which early in the morning and late at night, he is contemplating on the things of God. Now, that's a merism for the whole day, and it doesn't literally mean you have to, you can only do it in the morning and only at night, but it's that all-encompassing kind of mindset um, that, that, that God and his word should play in our lives. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you, in the night watches. And so the order of events, obviously, is the cause, is the remembering and meditating. The effect is the soul satisfaction. And then, now that he's satisfied, he begins to praise. Halal, from which we get the word hallelujah. uh, To extol, to laud, uh, to acknowledge something of great superiority and talk about it, whether it's to God in prayer or to others around. uh, To not settle for just a nice little spiritual phrase, hallelujah, but to actually do it, to actually praise. As C.S. Lewis says, uh, to, to really praise something, one must speak of it. We don't Praise is not a, a contemplative sort of uh, cerebral thing. It involves the whole expression of, of people. Athletics is a great example where we praise uh, great events or, or great time, moments in the game. We, we let people know that we think that was great, uh, and that's the essence of praise. Uh, Psalm 63 also uh, talks about uh, that God is his helper. Uh, Ladies, I think you're going to enjoy this one because this is a very powerful word throughout the Bible. But notice in verse 7, for thou, you, um, have been, I have an older version of the New American Standard, so I'm trying to convert on the fly here and I'm not doing a good job. But I don't use the word thou and hast a lot in my life, so I'm trying to do it. For thou hast been my help, and in the shadow of thy wings I sing for joy word help is the Hebrew, from the Hebrew word azer. Genesis 2 should come to mind, ladies, um, that, that the man alone is told by God, it's not good for you to be alone there, skipper. You're going to need a helper suitable for you. Unfortunately, in English, helper, eh, no big deal. You know, clean up, dishes, all that sort of menial task. The word elsewhere is used almost only to describe God. Ladies, it is a term that you and he enjoy together. You see that word in, for example, Eli Azer, the person's name. My God is my helper. Uh, Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge, people like that. Evan is a that's a Hebrew word. Evan means stone. Azar means help. The the stone of my help is a memorial that I got helped here, so I built a stone uh, dedication, sort of uh, altar. That God provides an assistance far greater than uh, vacuuming and uh, cleaning up. This is the type of of deliverance type of help. Uh, really in Genesis 2 language it is the completer to the incomplete man in the formation of the one flesh. That it took two to bring about what God was desiring. And for a while Adam had to learn his aloneness was not good toward that end. He needed one who could come and complete him. That idea of a shield elsewhere, this term is used to describe the protecting aspect of a shield. Uh, Very much like if we were in some kind of warfare, and I was trying to take care of this area over here, my back would be exposed. So we would say, so Val would come along and say, I got your back. And so together, we're this lean, mean, fighting machine. You know, all 360 are covered. And that's the image of the one flesh, biblically. And so if I'm opposed to God and his most precious creation, the one flesh, I'm going to try to tear it apart. And it took seven verses uh, after God pronounced at the end of Genesis 2 that the man and his wife were both naked, not ashamed. Uh, and it took within seven verses, the evil one had come after that new powerful being in which the helper was the last key piece, and through sin tore it apart. He got them to think like me again as opposed to a we. The word helper throughout the Bible is an absolutely crucial word, certainly descriptive of the wife in Genesis 2, but primarily and elsewhere and certainly here, this is the kind of assistance, powerful, protective, completing assistance that God brings. And so to call on God and for his, and his help is very revealing of what David is sensing. He's sensing his incompleteness. His defenses are not full he needs God to come in and, and cover his flank, uh, to get his back, to to make him whole again, if you will, in, in how he feels. And he needs God's wings, the protective presence of, of the wing, uh, as his hand and wing is seen here, uh, metaphorically, obviously. Um, notice he says, in the shadow of thy wings, I sing for joy. Uh, my soul clings to thee. Thy right hand upholds me. And so they the image of a bird and a man all in a couple of verses, the, the wing, the protection, the hand, the right hand, especially the hand of power uh, in most cultures. And that's what he's calling for. And he, he's, he's recognizing that God and God alone is the one who does that. We also have a cause and effect relationship like we saw earlier where you would meditate at night and then your soul would be satisfied. Here, the, the calling upon God in His help And the provision of God's hand and God's wing would then bring about the effect that we see at the end of that little section where he sings for joy my soul uh, clings uh, to thee, I'm sorry in the shadows of thy wing I sing for joy my soul clings to thee. So sort of around those two effects is that idea of God's hand and his wing and the response to that is that he will sing and cling. Uh, Same word here you see in the book of Ruth that She will cling uh, to to, uh, Naomi's people. Uh, That idea of of cleaving in Genesis 2 has the same image there of that powerful, strong bond. And that's what David is calling upon and senses his need for. Well, as these psalms go, at the end they get kind of rough. But he concludes, and, and the point of it is, is his confidence. Because David has just now done business with God. In the morning, throughout the day, and at night, his, his focus has now gotten off the exile, the dryness of his physical environment, and certainly that which has now affected his soul. And he's now moved toward a confidence in God that he had before. And as he confidently anticipates the destruction of those that seek to kill him. These verses at first can be kind of tough because... You're going, man, this is, you know, he's asking for people to die and all this stuff. You got to understand, he's a man of blood, he, he's a soldier. But what's ultimately at stake here is the reputation of the Lord. And that's why it's important for God to so fully destroy the enemy of his anointed to show his God's hand upon the anointed. He can't just put him on the bench, it's the ultimate act of sovereignty and appeasement of what has happened in David's life. And so that's why you're always seeing what's called an imprecatory prayer, God being invoked to kill those that have come against the king. Uh, Moses would do it all the time, too, in, in, uh, in, in Exodus, Leviticus, or Exodus in Numbers, uh, where God would say, um, you know, this isn't working out, Moses. I think I'm going to destroy all these people, which he had done, by the way, in Genesis 6, and Moses certainly knew of that time in the flood. I'm going to destroy all these folks, and then we can just start over. And Moses would go, no, no, no. May, may it never be, Lord, for your reputation is on the line because you have said you would do this. The proper way behind all of these imprecations was to call upon the reputation of God, to be reminded that God's reputation was really at stake here. and So that's why they're calling on the death of all these folks. Uh, but those who seek my life to destroy it, will go into the depths of the earth. I love the poetic essence here of what he talks about. He's not just going to die. He's going into the full depths of the earth. And on the way, they will be delivered over to the power of the sword, and then foxes will eat them before they go into the fullness of the earth. And then the king will rejoice uh, in God. And, And here, this is one of the best little phrases of why we think this psalm was written Uh, during his time with Absalom, the only two great exiles in his life before he was the king, literally or technically, and now he calls himself the king. If you study that little phrase of the king, you'll see it appearing in Psalms in which he has already been anointed, and it's well past the time of his 30th birthday where he was first made king. But the king will rejoice in God. Great, Great contrast. Look at what's happening to those that seek my life, that want to destroy it. They're in the depths of the earth. They're delivered over the sword and the prey for foxes. They're over here, but the king will rejoice in the Lord. And everyone who swears by him will glory, will, will radiate the importance of God. And that's really the essence of that word, glory. And for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped, which is the essence of what Absalom did. Remember, we studied that little passage in 2 Samuel 15. That's why we did it. That's what is at the, the last phrase of David in this psalm I thought was revealing. And I hadn't caught it before I studied for for tonight is that's the last thing on his mind almost like a dying man's word. I know he's not dying here but and, and by the way, let me leave you with this. those guys are lying okay what that little son of mine that's not true what he's saying now by the way, if you know the story, he's greatly distraught that absalom was was, was killed in battle um he's he he is it Abner or Joab that kills him? I think Joab that kills him, he gets his head caught in thickets. It's just not a pretty picture, and they run all sorts of swords through him. But then they tell David the story, and that's where he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son. Uh, He kept asking, does it go well with the the young man, Absalom? David seemed in his heart to be forgiving of Absalom, certainly because he's his son, but his youth as well. He's saying, how did it go with the young man, Absalom? Because David was asked to stay back from the battle. And he didn't go. And so finally one guy came and said, you know, what has happened to him has happened to all the other who, who lay dead on the battlefield. And that's how David knew that his son had died. And he says at the end of that chapter, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So uh, the, the essence of his life is, is certainly he had been upheld by the Lord, sustained by the Lord, as we see here. But the very real aspect that his son was dead, the son who came against him and exiled him. Um, All worshipers uh, who are in the wilderness uh, hope find that this is a psalm for them. Um, For them, the psalm reminds of that loyal love, that chesed of God that is of surpassing worth, uh, worth more than life itself. Uh, Their thirst, their longing thirst for God can be satisfied by the recall and realization of Yahweh's upholding power. Um, That's sort of how I, I sort of saw this psalm and and, and wanted to spend a little time um, going through some of the details because, and, and, and show us a little bit that if, if you can get into the backgrounds, especially of Psalms and other of these books that are connected, you could really, hopefully, uh, put your audience and yourself in, in the actual shoes of those that are going through it. Because it really is not powerful unless you can really imagine yourself exiled by your own son at the age of 65. And, and just all that that would have meant. And all the things that David could have lamented and complained against, he said, My soul thirsts for you. Early in the morning, late at night, and that's how he um, got through, if you will, his wilderness experience. Um, there, there are several other things that we could do uh, or you could do on your own that, that, uh, that are in connection with this. Obviously, you had some opportunity in your, in your workbooks to, to go through some of the questions, which I try to anticipate and, and answer here. Uh, But elsewhere, Psalm 73, 36, etc. But I I thought we'd spend a few moments just sort of discussing any questions that you might have, some reactions that you might have, um, testimony uh, of your own life and how uh, a wilderness experience might have marked you, how you might find similarity with what David has experienced, sort of whatever is on your mind. We'll come back next week and do Psalm 23. Take a look at that one and then... Kind of praise fest at the end. Yes, sir. So you talked about this a little bit, but um, I was wondering, as far as like some precatory prayers that you're talking mm-hmm. about, some people who are kind of hostile to Christianity will like to bring those up mm-hmm. to, you know, suggest that maybe God's not so good, or to say that go against, goes against like saying turn the other cheek. Could you stand a little bit of how you might deal with that? Well, God's a God of justice, uh, among many things, many of the Old Testament names of of the Lord are war names. By the way, El Gibor, the Mighty Man, uh, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of Hosts. We'll sing uh, from Psalm 46. Martin Luther wrote, uh, "A mighty fortress is our God." He'll say, um, "Lord Sabaoth, His name, that Lord of the armies." Uh, all the things that God is doing in the Old Testament, He's leading the army. But it's for what I was talking about here, the preservation of his name and his reputation. And so to just lift out an imprecation without the context is what those guys are doing. It is not true to the full character of God. Um, God is a God who has a right standard. We saw that in, in Psalm 1 and 2. Uh, Psalm eleven seven. the Lord is righteous. Yea, he loves it. And he loves that idea of a standard and it being kept. And he'll go to great lengths. To make sure that those that meet the standard are so blessed, and those that do not meet the standard um, suffer the, the pains of it. Hell is actually the extension of that same subject. If 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 you if you believe that that if if God was a, a turn the other cheek kind of guy all the time, you'd have to logically conclude that then hell could not be a component of his nature and and the the destination of those that are unrighteous. Yet the doctrine of hell is more clearly seen in the Scripture than, than you know, many other things that we think the Bible talks about all the time. In, in, at the end of Matthew, by the way, he equates the eternality of heaven to the eternality of hell, or oppositely, he, takes the, he equates the eternality of hell to that of heaven. So if you're all down with heavens forever, then you, he uses the same Greek word in the, in the same verse saying, and so is eternal destruction. So the context is usually your ally, what's going on, but for the purpose of the preservation of his name and reputation. One of the best word studies you'll ever do is just the, the word name, Hebrew word shem, like ham, shem, and japheth. But the word shem is this idea, not like buck, that's just that's what I'm called, but we all have a name. We don't use that term often anymore, but we might say, um, um, Ernie, you know Ernie, he has a good name in the community, uh, all that he is, his full reputation uh, connotes or you know, makes up, comprises probably better, your your name. And, that, and God is jealous about that first command, no other God before me. So you see the jealousy of the Lord properly, we've kind of botched that word up, the desire that, that God speaking, I'm the, I'm the best thing for you, so you need to align with me, and those that don't, will have to be judged because I have a standard and I will not lower my standard. I've come up with a way for you to meet my standard through my son or proper belief in the Lord up until the time of Christ. But he would not be true to his other attributes if, if we allowed his righteousness to be lowered by a misunderstanding of a turning the other cheek and things of that nature. So uh, that's kind of how I... I interpersonal... Situations described in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's a whole other kind of interpretive hermeneutics ball of wax. There is he talking about the the kingdom on earth, you know, when Christ comes back, because that's what he was presenting at the time, or those ideals that we would like to aspire to. I'm not really sure. Uh, it is clearly what he wishes in the end, but in the end, all things have been properly judged, and human relations among the righteous can be dealt with at that kind of manner? It's a good question, and they're tough. I mean, there's some tough verses, and they're throwing babies against the wall and all this stuff, and people will read that, that's your God. Step back from it and see it, that that is in response to actually years and years, in many cases, centuries of grace and withholding judgment, and yet his long-suffering has to end, or it wouldn't. he wouldn't have a standard, and he's going to Meet out justice at that time. And it appears to be very violent and rough at that time as, as what he's asking here. And that's what happened to Absalom. Absalom got killed. Um, and David was reascended to the throne and proved to all the people that he was God's choice. You know, there's stuff from Psalm 63 that sort of caught you, that you were intrigued by, that, that uh, would cause a response that you'd want to share with us. The, where's the Ark of the Covenant when, when, when did we lose it is it on Indiana Jones or did it really just go away uh, let me think for a minute um, Babylonian destruction 586 BC we don't have any reference of it after that um, did not seem to be present in Herod's temple What's, I'll tell you a fascinating thing there's a picture a guy named Lean Rittmeyer took a picture from the top of the Dome of the Rock, inside the Dome of the Rock, there's some scaffolding around the roof that you that workers would get to. You, you know, you go into the Arena, and you look up, and there's little catwalks. Guys can walk up there, fix the lights. They got the same thing there. And he took a picture. This is a Christian guy. He took a picture of straight down, because when you go into the, the Dome of the Rock, it's inside that gold thing. It's a rock escarpment, and it's not smooth at all. It's like the top of a mountain, and theoretically, that's... The threshing floor, that's the, the high point of what Jerusalem's built around. That's the place where the Ark of the Covenant and, and everything was built around. And most likely the same place where uh, Isaac was sacrificed, that venerated spot in Jewish mindset and history. So he takes this picture, and he's shooting it straight down, and he notices, uh, and he had to kind of enhance it, a, a man-made lines of a rectangle. You know, you you look at the top of a rock, you can tell what's man-made and what's not. And there's, and and they they had to do some math to kind of figure out because I'm taking it from 70 feet, and it would appear this big at you know at 70 feet, but in reality we could do the math to get it down, and it was the exact dimension of the Ark of the Covenant uh, as described in the Book of Exodus. Uh, It a rectangle kind of two by three, I think it's four by six, I can't remember, but that exact lineage or exact measurement of where it would, with the bars, it was set down in this recessed area in the rock so it wouldn't fall over, so it wouldn't rock. It wouldn't go all the way down, but it was deep enough, like the foundation of a building, to where it would make sure it was steadied. Uh, So even in the middle of the dome of the rock, and of course, everything over there is just king of the hill. If this was your best spot, Jewish guy, and I come beat you up, I'm going to put my best spot over here. It's like we see David here. May this guy be eaten by foxes. I'll rejoice in the Lord, that kind of a thing. And all of Jewish, all of archaeology throughout Israel, it can simply be traced because the the history is so rich. Jerusalem, Israel is some of the best place for Turkish, Persian, Greek, Jewish, and Christian archaeology there is because they've all lived there and they've all built their spots over the next guy's spot. So uh, my roof, once you beat me and, and knock all my stuff down, becomes your floor, and then you build up again. And that's the word tell. Like in Tel Aviv, it's a mound. It's, a, it's on a flat land, and over time, various civilizations have come in and built their stuff up based on the previous guy's stuff getting knocked down. Uh, and, and stuff is so new, but the Ark of the Covenant is a fascinating stu- subject, uh, Randy Price, the uh, good buddy of mine, Doctor Randall Price, has written, in my opinion, the best book on kind of the history of the Ark and could it be around. And he does wear a hat like Indiana Jones. And I go, Randy, you you just look ridiculous, man. And he goes, I, I got to have some fun, you know. He's a Hebrew kind of nerd guy, but he's a great kid, great guy. His family was raised, you know. Uh, Goim, he's a Gentile uh, but he was raised lived in, in Israel his kids uh, were born there a lot of them he went to university a Hebrew university but he's very knowledgeable but that his Dr. Randall Price is excellent but that's kind of the last time we have it you know, what, you know where it went Jeremiah's your best guy to kind of figure some stuff out maybe he took it to Egypt because Jeremiah is this weird prophet that existed before during and after the exile and so he sees the Babylonians come writes about it he writes Lamentations that says our, our people are eating dead corpses, you know, as prophesied in Deuteronomy 28, by the way, and then afterwards, this is what life is like after the the deportation. And the, and secular history has him going to um, Egypt and perhaps taking it there. Most Randy would think that the, the priests removed it long before the 586 deportation, because the, the battles first started in like 607 BC, 20 years before, and they figured it out, you know. But in search of the Ark of the Covenant by Bob Pierce. thank you very much. But it was at, it was the Liberty Bell uh, to to their faith. It was where God was, and so it was so poignant uh, to David's uh, worship of the Lord. Let me pray for us, and we can keep chatting, and um, and then we'll be back next week for Psalm 23. Lord, thanks so much for the privilege to think about these things and to be energized by you, to be sobered by the reality that the wilderness is our plight at times, Lord. Help us during those times to seek you early and late, to be overcome by your loving kindness and your character so that that actually is more important than my own life. Help us reach that point. Where david that David describes here uh, for those that are in the wilderness, Lord, we ask that we, you might make us sensitive to their needs, that we might be able to come alongside, and for our preparation for our wilderness times, Lord, we ask that nights like this be crucial bricks uh, in that foundation as we think about uh, that preparation for each one here, Lord, and for those that may not have been with us this evening, thank you for them. I ask you to bless them. let us finish our study over the next couple of weeks and uh, Uh, be a blessing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.